Do you want to hear a scary story? Parts of the Candyman movie are true. As the credits roll, you get a glimpse of some very real horror stories, and one of those is 14-year-old George Stinney, the youngest person ever to get the electric chair. He was so small, he had to sit on a book. They used a Bible. Another is the story of James Byrd Jr., one of the most horrifying murders you'll ever hear. I'm Amy, and this is True Crime Recaps. Lock your doors, turn on all the lights, and cover the mirrors. Today, Chris and I are going to tell you about the true stories featured in the Candyman credits. And I warn you, what you're about to hear is scarier and even more disturbing than you can imagine. But first, a little context for those of you who haven't seen the movie. Not to worry, no spoilers here. This is the character's origin story in 50 words or less. And get this, it was actually dreamed up by Tony Todd, the actor who first played the part in the 1992 version. So how about that for a fun fact? Here we go. In the late 19th century, a black painter named Daniel Robitaille was hired to paint a rich white lady's portrait in Chicago. The two of them fell in love and she got pregnant. Her father was so furious, he rounded up a racist mob who cut off his hand and replaced it with a hook, then covered him in honey and let bees sting him to death, turning him into the supernatural candy man. And legend has it, that if you say his name five times into a mirror, he comes to life and kills you with his hook. The mirror thing, that's not part, that's not the true part of this story. Hopefully. The truth is, the movie's most recent creators, Nia DaCosta and Jordan Peele, baked real life horror stories into the Candyman lore, which is what we want to tell you about today. And we want to start with one of the tragedies recreated with shadow puppets during the credits. This is the story of 14-year-old George Stinney. On a Friday afternoon in March 1944, two little white girls were brutally murdered in Alcolu, South Carolina. The events of that day are gruesome. 11-year-old Betty June Binnaker and 7-year-old Mary Emma Thames were out picking wildflowers when they were beaten over the head with an iron railroad spike and left to die in a watery ditch behind a church. So how did George get mixed up in this? Well, like most of the Deep South at that time, the small town was segregated. Train tracks divided the white side from the black side. Betty June and Mary Emma were riding their bikes near those tracks when they came across George and his little sister Amy. The two girls stopped to ask them if they knew where they might be able to find some Maypop flowers. They didn't know, and the kids went their separate ways, but the girls never made it home. Their bodies were discovered the next day. In a sick twist of fate, George's father was part of the search team that found them. Unfortunately, his son and daughter were the last known people to see the girls alive, and that was all it took to make George suspect number one. At first, both George and his older brother Johnny were arrested, but after hours of questioning, it was George that broke first. It's believed they got him to confess by starving him, then giving him food if he said what they needed to hear. The townspeople were threatening to come for him in prison, so they moved him 50 miles away to a jailhouse in Columbia while he waited for trial. It was too far for his parents to come more than a few times, so he was left alone. And they were going through a hell of their own. His father was fired from his job at the sawmill, 
And because the house they lived in was owned by the company, they found themselves without a roof over their heads and no money. They basically had to go into hiding from the townspeople who thought they also deserved to be punished along with George. In the best of times, the family wouldn't have been able to afford a good lawyer, and the one they ended up with was almost worse than none at all. The prosecution's case rested only on what they claimed George told the police about the murders. But even that had two versions. One story said George said that he followed them because he wanted to have sex with Betty June. And another version claimed that he killed them in self-defense. And the arresting officer claimed that George had told them where he threw the murder weapon. But there was no physical evidence or witnesses linking him to the murders. And who's to say that the cops didn't just find that murder weapon on their own? A halfway decent lawyer should have been able to argue George's case convincingly, but that never happened. His lawyer called no witnesses and didn't cross-examine the three officers who said George told them he did it. The only other people the prosecution called to the stand were the minister that first spotted the bodies behind his church and the two medical examiners that did the autopsies. None of their testimony was cross-examined. It was a joke of a trial that lasted all of three hours. After it was over, it took only 10 minutes for the all-white, all-male jury to deliberate and give him the death penalty. His family and the rest of the Black community appealed to the governor for mercy, begging him to change the sentence to life in prison and spare him the electric chair. But the governor wouldn't budge. In fact, he doubled down. He made a public statement claiming George had tried to have sex with the girl's dead bodies. From there, his court-ordered punishment came shockingly fast, even though South Carolina had to get the electric chair brought in from Pennsylvania only 88 days after he was arrested on June 16, 1944, at 7.30 a.m., George was strapped into the chair. He was only 5'1 and 95 pounds, much too small to fit this adult-sized instrument of death, but they made it work with the help of the Holy Bible as a booster seat. He was crying so hard they had trouble adjusting the strap around his chin. The chair was designed to kill a person in seconds, but the generator they were using to charge it wasn't powerful enough for that. It took eight long minutes of torture for George to die. And the nightmare wasn't over for his family. Not only were they not left alone to grieve for their son in peace, but the stigma of his trial and execution followed them until they were basically run out of town. For the next 70 years, the Stinney name was associated with the brutal murders. And then in 2014, his conviction was overturned and the judge admitted that a grave injustice had been done. As for the girl's real killer, whoever it was, that person got away with murder. So take a minute to collect your thoughts because there's one more true story featured in the Candyman closing credits, and it's much, much worse than the shadow puppet reenactment in the movie. The truth about James Byrd Jr. is one of the most horrifying murders I've ever heard of. Here's what happened. James had been celebrating at a friend's anniversary, but it was 2.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning, and he was ready to leave, except he didn't have a car. He only lived about a mile away, but he was hoping for a ride. When he couldn't get one, he decided to walk. It was a nice enough night in the small town of Jasper, Texas in 1998. 
He figured the walk wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, so he set out on foot. He was on his way home when a friend drove by him and noticed him walking, but it was late and he didn't stop. Besides, by the time he got home, he saw his buddy James again, and it looked like he had gotten a ride from someone else after all. He saw him sitting in the bed of a gray pickup truck. Three white guys were in the cab. Their names were Sean Berry, Lawrence Russell Brewer, and John William King. They were all in their early to mid-twenties. James was 49. Sean, Lawrence, and John had spent their Saturday night drinking beer and looking for trouble. By the early hours of Sunday morning, they'd knocked over stop signs, uprooted mailboxes, and were hoping for something bigger. That's when they spotted 49-year-old James Bird, and they had no intention of taking him home. Instead, they drove him out of town to an isolated spot in the country. In East Texas, two hours from Houston, isolated spots are easy to find. They drove the truck through the woods to a logging road before they pulled over. James jumped out, demanding an explanation. They jumped him instead. Outnumbered by three guys half his age in the middle of nowhere, James didn't stand a chance. They beat him to the ground where Lawrence sprayed his face with black paint before they wrapped a 24-foot logging chain around his ankles, tied the other end to their bumper, and hit the gas. They dragged him behind the truck for three miles. He kept his head up for as long as he could. Every one of his ribs was broken. Experts believe he was twisting and turning his body to try to survive the torture. It must have been unbearable, but he was fighting to live. Then, the truck veered in the direction of an exposed culvert, and when he hit that, it was over. The impact ripped his head, neck, and arm off his body. But they didn't stop. They dragged his torso for another mile until they got where they were going, a black church at the end of the road. They left what remained of him next to the segregated cemetery by the church. The next morning, before the parishioners arrived to worship, a sheriff's deputy got an anonymous tip that something horrific had happened out there. The tipster even described the gray pickup they saw, but no words could have prepared that officer for what he found when he got there. Police said a trail of blood and body parts stretched more than two miles back to the logging road where it all started. That's where they found Sean's wrench with his last name Barry on it. James's wallet was there too. John's lighter was on the ground. It was engraved with his prison nickname Possum and the letters KKK. They also found the can of spray paint, some beer bottles, and James's baseball cap. James had grown up in Jasper. A few years after high school, he got married and had three kids two girls and a boy. He was friendly and likable and did well as a vacuum salesman, but his heavy drinking made it hard to hold down a job and a relationship. He and his wife divorced in 1993, and he spent a little time in prison for petty theft. But by 1996, he seemed to be turning things around, determined to be a good father and grandfather. He moved back to Jasper, and he was a regular at AA. But... Then fate put him in the crosshairs of three very evil men. The three of them shared an apartment in Jasper, and they'd all been in and out of prison for various crimes. But in their twisted minds, their biggest claim to fame was John's position as the exalted Cyclops of the Confederate Knights of America, a white supremacist prison gang. It was his proudest achievement. And he was a walking billboard for the Aryan Nation. He tattooed their symbols across his body, a swastika of the words Aryan Pride, KKK, and a black man with a noose around his neck hanging from a tree. The cops had the three of them rounded up by the next night. They collected bloody clothes from their apartment and found the logging chain hidden behind their friend's house. 
James's blood was all over the truck and they had the statement from his buddy who'd seen him riding in the back early Sunday morning. But why him? Why James? The reasons why are as simple as they are complex. Hate, racism, and attention. John was hoping to start up a chapter of the Confederate Knights in Jasper, and he wanted to do something big to attract potential recruits. That's why he left James's body right out in the open on the street near the church on a Sunday morning. He wasn't trying to cover anything up. He was trying to make history, and he did, but not the way he hoped. He was the first white man in the history of Texas to be executed for killing a black person. But his good buddy Lawrence was actually the first one to get the lethal injection in September 2011. Both of them bragged about what they did right up to the day they died. Lawrence also has the dubious distinction of being the guy that convinced Texas to stop offering death row prisoners a choice for their last meal. The man thought it would be funny to ask for more food than any prisoner ever had before. He got chicken fried steak, an omelet, fried okra, barbecue pork, fajitas, a meat lover's pizza, a pint of ice cream, fudge, and three root beers. And he barely touched any of it. He just ordered it because he could. So they put a stop to it after that. Now prisoners on their way to meet their maker get what everyone else is eating that day. Which makes more sense. After all, did their victims get a chance to choose? As for the ringleader, John King got his lethal injection in April 2019 after 20 years of appeals ran out. Interestingly, James's only son publicly opposed the death penalty for them. As for Sean Barry, the third man involved, he made a deal to testify against John and Lawrence in exchange for life in prison with the possibility of parole in 2038, if he makes it that long. In the aftermath of James's murder, Texas passed the James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Act in 2001 to make punishments stricter for racially motivated violence. And in 2009, the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act became federal law. Now, take a minute to collect your thoughts and catch your breath, because when we come back, we're going to tell you the creepy true story behind one of the strangest cases featured in both the 1992 and 2021 Candyman movies, The Murder of Ruthie Mae McCoy. Ruthie Mae McCoy, or Ruthie Jean, as she's known in the movie, was killed by a man who came in through her bathroom mirror. This is nightmare fuel. On the night of April 22, 1987, Ruthie made a frantic 911 call, but the words she was saying didn't make sense to the dispatcher. She thought she heard her say people threw her medicine cabinet down and they were coming in through the bathroom. It sounded insane. The dispatcher figured Ruthie was talking nonsense, but she sent a police car to her apartment in the Abla Public Housing Projects in Chicago to check it out. Except in all the confusion, it wasn't reported as a robbery in progress. It was downgraded to a disturbance, so the police didn't make it a priority. But they quickly realized something more was going on because in the time it took them to get there, 911 fielded more calls from Abla, reporting screaming and gunshots coming from Ruthie's apartment on the 11th floor. But even though they got multiple calls about shots fired, all was quiet by the time they made it to her door, and they left when she didn't answer their knock. 
So the next night, Ruthie's neighbor called them back out to the Abla projects. She hadn't seen her friend since the day before, and she normally spoke to her at least twice a day. She was worried, and she wanted them to do a welfare check. So they knocked again. And again, Ruthie didn't answer, so they left. Again. Well, this time her friend wasn't just going to sit back and wait for Ruthie to emerge. She knew something was really wrong. So she pestered the management office until they sent someone to break open the door. And that's when they found her. She was lying in a pool of blood in her bedroom. Her apartment was ransacked and she'd been shot four times. And just like she said, her killers got in through her bathroom mirror. As brutal as it was, her murder might not even have made the news if it wasn't for that bizarre detail, and it caught the attention of reporter Steve Bagheera. He wrote an investigative article about it for the Chicago Reader in 1987, and the creepy facts he spelled out found their way into the plot of Candyman, along with her name. So, how does someone break in through the bathroom mirror? Yeah, you're not going to believe this. In some apartment buildings, especially public housing, the units are separated by a couple of feet of open space that you can crawl through, and the medicine cabinets are only hanging on by four little screws, or like six nails. Take those out, and you can pull the cabinet away from the wall and find yourself looking straight into the back of your neighbor's bathroom cabinet. All it takes is some elbow grease to push it off their wall and open up a space to crawl in. People had been breaking in like that in the projects for over a year before her murder. And she wasn't just some random target. Ruth was known by her neighbors as that crazy lady who talks to herself and yells at strangers. Her mental illness made it impossible to hold down a job, and she'd been in and out of institutions. But in the months before her murder, she finally qualified for supplemental security income, which doubled the amount of disability pay she got every month. And since it paid out retroactively, she got a $2,000 check in the mail. She was going to use it to get herself into a new place in a safer area. But first, she spent a little on herself and she picked up a few things for her place. But her shopping didn't go unnoticed. It's believed that her attackers thought she had a lot of money there, which is why they broke in and robbed and killed her. Two people were arrested and they were tried for it, but they were found not guilty. It's... But here's the thing. You might want to check your mirror because you might be living in the same type of building, even if it's not necessarily public housing. In March 2021, a girl in New York noticed a draft in her bathroom, or there shouldn't have been a draft, and she ended up discovering a hole behind her bathroom mirror that opened onto a vacant three-room apartment she didn't even know existed. It wasn't just, you know, the unit next to hers. No, no. This was like a secret apartment that just happened to have access to hers through the bathroom mirror. She posted the whole thing on TikTok. It went viral. And a month later, the building bolted all the unit's mirrors a little harder. So thanks. And since that's a thing that can happen, I may never go into the bathroom again or sleep again. But I do have to take a quick break to thank today's sponsor. I'm not, I'm not going to the bathroom, though. But don't go away, because when we come back, we have some bizarre fun facts for you about the Candyman movie, courtesy of Chicago's WTTW News and AllThat'sInteresting.com. 
Legend has it that if you say Candyman's name in the mirror five times, he'll appear and murder you with his hook for a hand. But the script for the original movie in 1992 called for the victim to say his name 13 times. But when they did the first cast read-through, they realized that 13 times was excessive, to say the least. So they changed it to five. That must have been a relief for everyone. There would have been a lot of very sore jaws on that set. Speaking of sore, Candyman is known for the swarm of bees surrounding him, and it's hard to wrangle those flying creatures. Apparently, Tony Todd, the star of the original film, got a little hazard pay for putting up with it. And when I say little, I mean little. He was paid $1,000 for every sting. Is that worth it? By the end of the production, he made $23,000 in bee sting money. They also shot both the original and the 2021 version on location at Cabrini Green in Chicago. Today, it's luxury housing, but back then it was a rough neighborhood. The production had to make a deal with local gang leaders that included casting Cabrini Green residents as extras in exchange for protection. And that's your recap. If you like getting all the crime in half the time, we hope you'll stay long enough to hit subscribe and give this show a five-star review. It only takes a minute, but it means the world to us. Thanks again for spending this time with us, and until next week, take care.